Hello, I'm Karen Viggers. I'm a local Canberra author of contemporary fiction, and I'm here this afternoon um, in extraordinary times uh, with the COVID-19 virus uh, about on the cusp of taking off across Australia. I'm here at the National Library of Australia with Felicity Volk to help uh, launch and celebrate and discuss her wonderful new book, Desire Lines, um, which is it's a difficult time for authors trying to launch books here in, in Australia and around the world. So we felt it was very important to get together to talk books here at the National Library today. Before we get started, I just wanted to begin with a, an acknowledgement of country um, and to acknowledge the Indigenous people of this land that we're meeting on today um, and acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging, for they hold the hopes, the dreams the memories and the stories of Indigenous Australians. And their voices um, are both uh, so important in, in society and also um, in literature. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to acknowledge um, their contributions to uh, this society and also to the, the past and the building of Australia. But um, here we are, Felicity and I, uh, to chat to you here today about her wonderful new book, Desire Lines. Um, which is an, an, an incredible book that she's going to tell us a little about today. But Felicity, the opening line of your novel is just so very arresting. I remember opening the book and reading that line, Are You Still a Liar? It's a really great hook. It, it draws the reader in and immediately you're wondering who is lying. So can you just first tell us a little about the, um, the story, the outline of the story, and, um, and then about the history behind that comment and whether that came to you initially or was something that developed as the novel evolved. Well, thanks so much, Karen, and also thank you to you for being prepared to come here for this event and to the National Library of Australia. I was going to be here with 200 guests tonight to launch the book, um, and hopefully this way I'll be launching with uh, over a 1,000 people tuning in to, to see this presentation. But to your question, are you still a liar? Yes, that was the starting point of the book, but in fact I didn't write the first line um, as my very first line of the novel. There were three key seeds in the origins of this novel. Um, the first, which relates to the love story theme of the novel, uh, was that I indeed myself had a quite complicated relationship several years ago which ended painfully. Um, the motif of truth and lies wound its way through that relationship. Um, and so when I started writing the novel quite some time ago, just the first few thousand words, I was probably in a fairly grief-stricken place about the end of that relationship. There was a bit of anger there, uh, probably the sort of anger that manifested in that first line, are you still a liar? Um, but that was not the line that I began the novel with back that, that number of years ago. Um, for a variety of reasons, I ended up not proceeding with the novel. I came back to it several years down the track. I was very busy at work. Then I was fortunate to have a grant from the Australia Council and from Arts ACT to have a dedicated year of writing this novel. And consequently, I came back to it many years down the track and, um, and I was in a very different place towards my own sense of the love story itself. And I was in a far more compassionate place, a place of forgiveness and wanting more to look at human foible um, and why we make the decisions we make that may impact negatively on the people around us. 
um, and wanting to tell a story of tenderness and compassion and grace and forgiveness rather than a story of anger and bitterness. That was the first seed. The second seed is to do with truth and lies. A um, central theme of the a novel. A very central theme of the novel. And uh, I had uh, an incident that's one of my earliest childhood recollections. And I was five years old. I was being babysat fairly regularly by my grandmother. And uh, on one particular evening when I was being picked up from her house, I was in the kitchen by myself. I saw on the kitchen bench a plastic bag that had a $5 note in it. I knew it was going to be put out for the milkman, not the milkwoman, because we didn't have milkwomen. It was for the milkman. It was the weekly... Um, payment of, uh, of the uh, cost of the milk money. I thought it would be a great joke to take that money. So I pocketed it and I took it home and I thought no one will know where it is. It's going to be this fantastic practical joke. Put it in my sock drawer at home. The following morning my grandmother called my parents and said, did anyone see the milk money? I was asked. I said, no, I didn't see it. Let me continue this great practical joke. The following Saturday morning there were... Um, socks put into my sock drawer after the family wash and the money was found and I was spanked for both stealing and lying and uh, that is the scene that wove its way into the very early story of Evie, my female protagonist, um, because that sense of the way we navigate truth and lies and what we characterise as truth and lies shaped me from the age of five and has definitely been a theme in my own life and something that I've been interested in exploring. Third seed, and the last one that I want to refer to, is the nature of seeds themselves. Um, at the end of my first novel, Lightning, uh, my protagonists finish uh, their journey in uh, uh, close to Uluru. They're sitting under a hackier bush. Fires have gone through the national park. There's a sense of complete devastation, but also the regeneration that uh, that bushfire brings to the Australian native species. And uh, in that particular scene. You can hear the hackier um, seeds sprouting, the banksia pods popping as a result of fire, and there's that sense of fire's regenerative, restorative qualities. When I was researching that scene and looking at different plant species, I happened to come across a reference to the global seed vault in the Arctic Circle in Norway, and the idea of seeds being put on ice in the middle of a mountain, uh, a global seed vault where we store our seed stock to... Uh, preserve species against catastrophe, whether man-made or, or natural. And um, I was fascinated by the idea of putting seeds on ice to preserve our future as an insurance policy against catastrophe. And so while I didn't think about it at the time, um, I now, you know, with that sort of reverse engineering that we do with many aspects of our life, I look back and I feel like a baton was passed from that first, uh, that last chapter of my first novel to the first chapter of my new novel and so it began in the Arctic Circle but I did not write that first chapter until I'd started writing the 1952 second chapter of the story. Because this is a novel that takes place over quite a vast stretch of years, mm. almost 60 years, isn't it? Yes. And so I want you to just um, elaborate a little for us the, the narrative thread, because there's two main protagonists and we follow each of their stories in parallel and for a while we're wondering how they're going to come together. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit more just to set the scene for the rest of the discussion about those two characters and also about... You don't have to give the whole narrative arc away, but just a little idea of where the, the story heads. Sure. 
Um, so after the first chapter that is set in the Arctic Circle in 2012 with Evie, my um, in her 60s landscape architect, making a deposit of Australian seed stock into the seed vault, the novel um, chapter two flashes back to 1952. It's London. We meet Paddy, my male protagonist, at the age of about six turning seven. He's growing up in a dysfunctional family. The father is a philanderer, he's abusive, um, he's an alcoholic, um, he's an ice deliverer around uh, central London. And there's a particular scene that occurs that triggers a whole sequence of events for Paddy um, and has him end up in a Nazareth house run by uh, Catholic nuns for a few months effectively as an orphan, abandoned by his family. Um, and then he is sent out to Australia as a former child migrant, as a child migrant, um, one of the former child migrants whose oral histories are, are held in the National Library of Australia. And I did some fantastic research here, listening to their stories. Um, but Paddy comes out to Australia um, in early 1953. He's on a cruise ship along with other children going to the Fairbridge Farm Schools around Australia. His final destination is the Molong Farm School um, and he skirts the edge of institutional abuse there, um, has a very difficult childhood but he's very gifted although damaged and he ends up um, being awarded a scholarship to go to the Blue Mountains Grammar School, then to Sydney University to study architecture and so he sets his professional design line as an architect and that eventually finds him in Canberra working on the construction of the High Court of Australia. My female protagonist, Evie, um, we meet her um, in the next chapter after Paddy's first introduction. And uh, we meet her at the age of around six and she's growing up in a middle class, upper middle class family in Australia. Her father's the assistant crown solicitor. Her mother is a Chaucer lover and teaching English at a grammar school here. Um, so Evie grows up in a quite idyllic childhood with a particularly fond um, relationship with her grandmother who is herself a horticulturalist of sorts. Her grandfather who was deceased um, was a, a planter of trees, um, a, a horticulturalist in, in Canberra, um, responsible for the early planting of Canberra. And so she's inherited this, both uh, this sort of genetic memory of what it's like to work with plants and she's seen her grandmother working with plants and so this is her first love and this also sets her design line professionally to become a landscape architect and to work on the High Court of Australia's um, landscape uh, architecture and the planning of, of all of the land around the Parliamentary Triangle. Um, so Evie and Paddy meet in the Blue Mountains at the age of 16. It's their first love. It's passionate. It's compelling. And it also sets another desire line for them in terms of their love story and it's a story that weaves together in a part because Paddy is characterised by the need to hide things, to compartmentalise, to tell lies, to keep things secret. Evie's driven by a need for truth and authenticity and these two modus operandi keep butting heads against each other and make it both an impossible love but also an utterly compelling love that sees them uh, coming together frequently over a very long period of time, 50 years in their love affair. Yes, look, um, it really is a, a novel of um, parallels and contrasts, mm. isn't it? Um, as you said, you know, Paddy's had a very difficult journey 
uh, through his childhood in particular. Um, and in comparison, you know, Evie has such a sheltered um, and protected and privileged life. You know, he deals with poverty and domestic violence and and um, rejection and and all of those and you know quite a lot of other violence as well, uh, psychological violence. And yet, Evie is so loved. It seems like you're, you're really um, sh trying to show us how important our backgrounds are to the choices we make and the people we come, become and mm. identities. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about, about that and, and how you know, Paddy's past shapes him versus how Evie's past shapes her? Mm, sure. So I, I think the reason that I framed the novel using that sort of device of um, starting at adulthood for Evie giving the reader, perhaps tantalising them with this opening line, are you still a liar, so that they knew that there was a whole backstory to where Evie is when we first meet her in her 60s. Um, I, I was telling a story where I knew what the end point would be um, and I wanted to understand how my characters got there and I actually didn't know a lot about how they got to where they were and what, what did shape them and what caused them to make the decisions that they did, often decisions that came at great cost or caused great pain. And so for me, as much as it is for the reader, it was a journey of discovery about what it was that shaped both of them in their very early years and continued to shape them throughout those very formative years through to their mid-twenties that caused them to be the people they were, to make those decisions that they did. And so I was discovering a lot about Evie and Patty as I was doing the writing and where that first chapter uh, finishes with Evie trapped in a glacial ice cave and almost herself put on ice like the seeds that she's put into the cave in the global seed vault. I felt as if Evie was uh, trapped in the cave that I'd created for her and that I was interrogating her in that cave gently, I hope, but asking her about why it was that she made these decisions and why her love for Patty was so compelling and why she made the compromises she did um, over many years. By the same token, I found myself having those same conversations with Patty on the way through the writing. You know, why is it that you, uh, you shape your life around lies? Why is it that you need to protect so much? Why is it that you are so driven by ambivalence? Why can you not make strong decisions and be courageous? And I wanted to get to a place where I felt like I could forgive Paddy for what he did and forgive Evie for the decisions that she made as well that I think came at cost to people around her. Um, and so I wanted to set both myself and the reader up to approach each of these flawed characters with compassion and understanding and a sense of tenderness by the end of the novel and hopefulness for them. Um, so it was a bit of a case of reverse engineering. Possibly. Well, it's so important, it isn't it, that um, that, that the characters are flawed and and do mm. have um, difficulties because we all do, and mm. I think that's what helps us to relate to both of these characters so strongly is their fallibility and their inability to assess themselves, perhaps as well, um, and their own identities. Um, you know, trying to understand that as you, it's a life life's journey, isn't it, to do that. So this is also a novel about the identity of Australia and especially of Canberra um, as well. Um, the novel um, tracks some of the very important moments in history mm. and important decisions made in Canberra and some, some 
I guess it also reveals some of the, and discusses some of the dishonesty around public mm. discourse and perhaps you could speak a bit more to that and, and how you saw that fitting with the, the narrative. Thanks, yeah. Um, it actually became a really interesting strand of the novel for me because when I first started writing it I hadn't intended to take the novel in the direction of that sort of uh, exploration of the way we navigate truth and lies on the national stage mm. and in, in our national discourse. But what I found by virtue of the fact that I was covering a 60-year period in Australia's history and a 50-year period in the story of my two characters coming together and needed to give a sense of the way um, time moved and society was shifting to create that authentic sense of time and of place. And so as I was researching on the way through and looking for some milestone events to become the markers of this passage of time, I realised that all of these milestone markers also had within them um, key messages about um, the way we have a very uneasy relationship with truth-telling mm. on the national stage and also um, a difficulty with finding our way through truth and lies to have a clearer sense of our national identity. And that, for example, is in relation to our treatment of society's most vulnerable people, um, our Indigenous relations, children who are in institutional care. So there's been a lot of work in the most recent decade or so to find a way to tell truth and to apologise mm. for the lies and the damage that have been done on the national stage um, and in our national life. Um, but it's taken us a long time to get to the point where we're capable of doing that. And in the same way I saw that journey being part of the journey of my characters, uh, because it takes them a long time to make peace with the past, to come to a point where they can recognise exactly what they've been involved in, and to move forward in a, in a clean and uh, much more healed capacity, to the extent any of us can be healed. Um, and I think there is always, um, you know, we carry scars and certainly my characters do and certainly Australia does. Um, but uh, I felt that those key, those key markers were a really useful backdrop to the intimate exploration of truth and lies in a personal relationship. Yeah, look, I think you did that really well, Felicity. Um, it certainly um, brought Canberra to life in a way that people might not necessarily um, consider. Uh, because place is very important in this novel and, and Canberra is a place where we live. It's also the home mm. of the National Library of Australia. Um, there's, there's a lot of important history um, in, uh, history there, but then that's talking about the political place, but the physical and geographical sense of place is really important in, in your novel as well. And it, it starts um, uh, in Svalbard in northern, um, in northern Norway. How do you pronounce Longyearbyen or...? Uh, I'm going to get this wrong, and I'll, if there are any Norwegian speakers, please forgive me, but Longyearbyen is ah. the way I understand it's pronounced. I think I may not have the accent in exactly the right place. Longyearbyen. So, so the novel um, begins in Longyearbyen, and it includes London, um, Molong, the Blue Mountains, and also mm. Canberra. One of the things that I really enjoyed when I, I read the novel was your the way evocative way that you created a sense of place, because place is important to me in my writing mm. as well, and and creating that sense of being there. I particularly remember a, you know, a love scene in the Blue Mountains where you could hear the insects in, in the trees and you could hear the bird song and, and smell the air. So um, I want you to talk a little more about the importance of place in this novel and in your writing. 
Um, similarly to your writing, uh, A Sense of Place, from my point of view, it's crucial because I think it, it helps to anchor the reader in the narrative if they can actually feel like they're part of the physical location. They're not just seeing it, but also smelling it and hearing it and understanding the way light plays on different landscapes and so on. So uh, to take the example perhaps of the very first chapter in the Arctic Circle, the reason I decided not to write that chapter as my first attempt at the novel was because I wanted to travel there um, before yeah. I wrote it. And again, because I had that, um, that beautiful luxury of the support from the Australia Council and Arts ACT, I was able to do the research in place for different parts of the novel, uh, including that time in the Arctic Circle. So I flew there um, in February uh, in, uh, at, at the exact time that Australia's actual first deposit of seeds was made into the seed vault, yeah. which occurred at the end of the polar winter. There's 100 years of a hundred days, sorry, of polar winter, at the end of which the sun appears over the horizon for the first time, but you don't actually see the sun, you just see the blush of light on the tops of these mountains that surround Longyearbyen. Um, and it's beautiful and, and magical. And so I went there and I had experiences and I met people and gained a sense of place that uh, was crucial to the writing of that first chapter and the last chapters which finish back there. Um, I wanted to give the reader a sense of what the ice smells like and, and what it's like to be in a place in polar night, in polar winter, with this strange blue light and, um, and the sound of the snow and the quiet of the place. Um, and so it was very useful to have been there, to be able to do that, but also to have experiences like um, going into a glacial cave. I had organised a tour where I was part of a group of people who did this, this trip into a, uh, a glacial cave. So we hiked up a glacier and then you go down around 40 metres into the cave. And um, at the, I was in my early 50s at the time and very unfit. And <laughs> uh, in this group of about 10 tourists, we had two guides with us because there are polar bears around there. As soon as you leave the central township of 2,000 people, you have to have a rifle um, within your party in case you come across polar bears. So I was straggling behind this group and uh, as the straggler and the one who would have been picked off by the polar bear should one have been in the vicinity, you know, always go for the weak and the infirm, mm. um, one of the guides stayed with me and he was remarkably kind and patient with me, indeed stopped me, uh, similar to a scene that appears in that first chapter um, and my eyelashes were just frozen because my eyes were weeping copiously and they would freeze because it was minus 18 degrees and um, he held a hand over my eyes to melt my eyelashes for me and it was just this beautifully kind gesture and so it's those little vignettes that then weave their way into a narrative and again give a sense of authenticity and give a reader a sense of being really physically located in the narrative and really feeling with the characters everything that goes on for them so yeah across the board sense of place is a critical starting point for any writing. And look, I think you did that so very elegantly um, and having a novel commence um, in the Arctic. I myself have spent time down in the Antarctic mm. and so I know the importance of the light um, and that, that sense of cold and uh, it's very, it can be very difficult to put words to but I think you've done it with great elegance and, and the silence, the great silences of, of the ice and the sound of the wind and all those sorts of things um, done so beautifully and that really did make me feel like I was was back there again and I knew you must must have visited that place.
Um, it's interesting talking about the, um, the ice caves um, down in Longyearbyen. Longyearbyen, Longyearbyen. I won't, probably <laughs> won't get it quite right. But um, the, as you said, those, those caves are there to store these seeds forever. Mm. And yet in this modern age, we're facing the irony of the fact that with global warming and climate change, the security of those, those caves uh, is potentially in question in the longer term. And that made me, that brought me to thinking about um, the, the theme of love and passion in this novel and impermanence, which mm. also seems to be a very strong thread. I, I know it's described as a love story, um, and it's interesting I didn't think of it, re I, even though it centres around this great love. There's so much more to the novel mm. that, it, it, to me, it is just one of the threads of the novel, but it's an important thread. Um, so I wanted to ask you what you think is, what is love and, and what it, how does it differ from passion and how you've tried to illustrate it in this novel? Um, first of all, thank you for that uh, prelude comment about it being much more than a love story because it, also from my point of view, while the love story is the narrative arc t to some degree, I do think that there is a lot more to the novel um, and there was certainly a lot more that I wanted to bring out uh, through the narrative. But yes, the love story is one of the desire lines that weaves its way through the novel. Listen, I'm not prescriptive about what love is. Um, it shifts over time. We all experience that, that uh, very first flush of love that Evie and Patty experience as teenagers um, is definitely uh, such a compelling experience for them and, so, and, and changes them so irrevocably that that then does set their course for this very difficult love that they follow mm. over many decades. Um, there are elements of their love that, does, that, that don't change. Um, I think for them passion remained, probably because they came together and apart so frequently. I think it's harder to sustain passion if you are in a relationship permanently. Um, but I think there are wisdoms that we all acquire over the course of a life and a course of a love. And um, the key wisdom that I, I see my characters discovering is the wisdom of finding compassion for self and compassion for other and being able to look past uh, anger and, uh, and grief about not being treated the way you would prefer or not being treated with respect um, and being lied to. But coming to a point where you realise that people mostly are not malicious and malevolent. They do the best they can um, and they do the best they can with these seeds that are planted in them right from very early years. And so as time goes on and you are more distanced from difficulty and conflict, um, I think you have the capacity to look back at the past and to look at the people that you love with that compassion and that grace. And that is the arc for these two characters. And that journey um, of seed and germination and growth and, mm. and development. And I just wanted to finish with just talking a little bit about design in this book because it's um, it's it's such a it's a central part of the novel as well, isn't it? Like design of with architecture and horticulture and garden design and the design mm. of Canberra um, and the lines. I suppose that's how I saw that as part of the of the desire lines as well was that that theme of design and architecture and. Um, I wondered if you could chat a bit more about that. Yeah, so I had the title for the novel even before um, I began writing any of it. The, um, for me, the titles of my work are often... I, I see them like DNA. 
And from that DNA grows the whole body of the work, and so the flesh and bones form around that DNA. And so that concept of desire lines for me, for me was a critical motif or metaphor that underpins the entire novel in both architecture and also in, uh, in landscape architecture, in urban planning. Desire lines are... Um, there's a school of thought that... Uh, rather than concreting in paths around a new edifice or concreting in paths through a park, that you wait to see the way people use the land around a building or the way they use the land through a park. And those are their desire lines. They're not necessarily a shortcut, but there's something of particular appeal that draws us in a certain direction. And I love that idea that whatever path is laid before us, it's not necessarily the one we'll take. The heart has reasons, of mm. which reason knows nothing kind of thing, that... We, we will end up following where our heart leads us. And so that happens in my characters' professional lives, both as architect and landscape architect. It happens in their personal lives, in their love lives. So it was always that, that key theme that was going to set the whole course of the novel. Well, the novel certainly is a very beautiful journey um, that takes us to many places of the heart and of character and of difficulty and of struggle, uh, of honesty and of wisdom. I found all of those things definitely threaded into the novel but I'd like you um, perhaps to finish by sh sharing a little of the voices of each of these characters sure. with us so so that we can feel perhaps a little closer to to both Evie and Patty and um, yeah I think that would be a nice thing to do. Thanks um, so I'd like to read just a little from uh, one of Patty's very early chapters where he's he's on the cruise ship um, he's in the charge of his carer Charlie and Charlie's wife Lillian these are carers who've looked after the group of children who are heading in the direction of uh, the Fairbridge farm schools. And they're just arriving into Sydney. It's 1953, and um, there's a group of them on the top deck. Paddy and his cabin mates were on the top deck of the Oronse with their carers when they rounded the headlands, sailed past an old fort, and entered Sydney Harbour. A sleepy light fell over the city, but already dawn's vague haze was dissolving into a cloudless summer day. Everywhere blue and gold and silver and the dull gleam of a bridge that spanned the harbour. In its shadow, a garish moon face set between two towers that Charlie explained was the entrance to an amusement park. Standing at the rails in front of Charlie, Paddy fought back the howl welling inside him. It was so beautiful and so sad, the light, the blue, the show-off city that Mammy would never get to see, the man against whom he leaned, solid and yet soft, the smell of him fresh showered in the familiar tangy scent. He rested his cheek against the man's beaded skin and swallowed a sob. Told you you'd love it, Charlie said. Told you. Several decks below, their four suitcases were stacked side by side on the floor of the cabin. They collected them on the way to their disembarkation point. Close to the bottom of the gangway, a suited man was waiting with a handwritten sign that said, Fairbridge Society. Even from a distance, he was an imposing figure, a head taller than the surrounding throng. Squinting, the man watched for the group of children with their uniform luggage and matching clothing. He took a white handkerchief from inside his suit coat and mopped his perspiring forehead, his florid cheeks, the skin that hung beneath his chin, like the kangaroo's pouch Lillian had identified in the pictorial. Paddy, Charlie motioned him away from the others. He stood clutching his suitcase, four times as wide as him, half as tall, a barricade between him and his carer. 
Around them, departing passengers jostled. It was like being in the sea, washed back and forth, swept close to a life buoy and away again. Charlie reached for him and pulled him towards the wall where the crowds had thinned. Paddy didn't want to look at him. It was hard enough to keep himself in check, but the man kneeled in front of him, bringing them face to face. You'll be all right, Paddy, I promise. How could he promise? How could anyone promise such a thing? But he forgave Charlie his wishful thinking and threw his arms around his neck and held tight to the well-intentioned lie and tighter still to his tears because he didn't want the big man on the wharf to think he was a crybaby. And once he was there in Charlie's arms holding on, he found he couldn't let go. So that's, a that's, really, that's a really beautiful <laughs> passage. And it just shows that despite all the suffering that Paddy's experienced, with, even with his own family and, and um, in uh, London in the, the orphanage, mm. that he is still a vulnerable and innocent soul. Mm. Um, Very and, much. But there's more hardship ahead. Yes, sadly. Um, and then I thought I'd just read a little bit from one of Evie's chapters. It harks back to that question that you asked about... Um, what we learn about love as we go through it and, and the wisdoms that we acquire with age. So this is Evie, um, she's, it's just after her father has died and she's at his wake and she's there with her ex-husband, um, Rod, who she left because of her love for Paddy. Um, so I'll just read a, a section about uh, their interaction at that wake. She had loved two men, only two. That was probably enough, more than enough in the view of some at the time, her parents, Rod, her children, and she loved them still. It was not wrath but indifference that killed love. That was the canker, and for a while there had been indifference with Rod. Pushing him away, however, had brought a form of love back, like a pruning. He had never been the compulsion that Paddy was, her heart's conviction that it had found its home, but her affection for him was a calm comfort. Could you do me a favour while I get started on the dishes? She asked. Sure. Would you set a fire in the living room? I'm cold. He chose Jeff's best bottle of red from the cellar and opened it to breathe while they finished returning the house to order. In the living room, the fire crackled cheerily. Its warmth floated through the house. Logs snapped, resin exploded, a slight smokiness. Her father hadn't had the flu swept in recent years, Evie supposed. Add it to the list, she said to herself. When there was nothing more to do that night, she threw scatter cushions from the sofa onto the floor beside the hearth. Propped on the carpet, they toasted the departed with his wine. The alcohol, the heat ran through them. So what's going on, she ventured. Rod would know... <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Rod would know she was asking after Zenobia. We're having a bit of a break. He didn't appear to be ready to expand on this. Evie lay down and returned her gaze to the fire. She was sad about her father, but it was not the deep sorrow she would have felt if she'd been in the mountains rather than Canberra at the seed meeting, unable to get to him before he slipped into whatever quiet place had been his waiting room before he left altogether. Lasts were important, she thought. Last conversations, last declarations of love, last making of it, love. Of course, there always was a last. You just didn't always know you had had it. Not until later, 
<clears throat> often not until too much time had passed to safeguard the memory, embalming its body for the regular resurrections nostalgia would require of it. Thank you. Thank you. That was really beautiful. Both excellent readings that really reflect the characters and the journey of the narrative. And, and it really is a very wonderful book that Felicity's written. And I really hope it goes out into this, this difficult world at a time where people are needing to do lots of reading. It's a, a positive and beautiful story that, me, that not, when I say meanders, it, it's a, a forward-moving meander. It's not, it's not a slow book in any way. The, the journeys of the characters are so rich and so engaging. And look, I'd really highly recommend that you read it beautifully written, rich with metaphor and with symbolism and motif and um, very lovely literary work that I can highly recommend. And it would also be lovely for, uh, for you supporters of the National Library of Australia to know um, that this book is for sale in the National Library Bookshop and can be bought online, even though we're not able to be out and about as much as usual. It can be bought on the National Library Bookshop uh, there's currently a 10% discount on, on the books and um, there is a limited number of signed copies because uh, unfortunately we're not allowed to do signings and things at the moment as well. So if you would like to order a copy of Desire Lines, um, and I, apparently my books are also uh, in the National Library too, um, then you need to go to the bookshop website and when you um, are trying to do the order you have to enter the code Desire Lines in capital letters. Uh, so that 10% discount is for just a limited time. But just to finish, I'd like to thank uh, the National Library of mm. Australia for, for running this event to support authors who are, are trying to work, uh, launch their works in this very difficult time. Um, it's great to have that support, and both Felicity and I um, appreciate that and acknowledge it and hope that the um, Australian public will continue to support Australian authors. So thank you. Thanks very much, Karen, and, and thanks a lot to the library as well and, uh, and to viewers. Thank you.